Hello, welcome to Ideas for India conversation on the topic of automation and inequality. So we've all been hearing about the waves of automation, particularly in developed countries since the 1980s, with robots displacing workers, especially in blue collar occupations. And most of what we're seeing in the newspapers and reading in the magazines is pretty alarmist. The specter of mass unemployment, wage stagnation, the share of labor and national income is declining and has been declining for almost 40 years now, reversing a sort of century-long constancy of the share of wages and national income. Moreover, it seems to be spreading beyond manufacturing and blue-collar jobs to white-collar jobs in the service sector, travel agents, bank tellers, retail services. All are getting affected. Now it's extending to the IT sector, finance professionals, data processing. So where is it going to stop? Uh, that's what a lot of people are wondering about. And what is it going to do to inequality? An alternative to this is a more long-run but optimistic view that this is the way it is typically with technological change. In the short run, there is turbulence, but in the long run, costs come down, productivity goes up, prices fall, incomes grow in other sectors, and these sort of partial equilibrium displacement effects are overcome and overwhelmed by these general increases in welfare elsewhere in the economy. And there's nothing new about this wave of technological revolution. We've been through this before in previous industrial revolutions. So the question is, what is really true? What are the implications for developing countries? Uh, something that we get to later in the conversation. So I have here one of the top experts on automation research, uh, Pascual Restrepo, my colleague at Boston University. And he has been doing a lot of pioneering research, theoretical and empirical, on the topic of automation. So Pascual, let's start with the developed country experience. Could you summarize uh, what has been happening is the alarmist view or the more optimistic view being borne out in reality? Perfect. So thanks, Dilip, for, for inviting me. And I think that, that in general, both views are in some sense wrong and are not very useful for approaching this question. So I think that like most of things in economics, like the answer lies somewhere in the middle. So the point that I want to make is that it is the case that some of these advanced technologies that have automated some jobs, and I want to discuss a little bit the definition of automation in more detail in a minute, but it is true that many of these technologies have created losers. And this is something that we tend to underestimate as economists because we tend to overestimate the speed at which people can relocate and how fast the turmoil that you were describing is going to end. So I think that on the one end, what I want to emphasize is that, yes, these class of automation technologies have the potential to create losers. Those losers can experience declines in the real wages, declines in employment, higher unemployment, higher labor market insecurity. And these are things that we should be worried about. And in that case, the optimistic view is right. That doesn't mean that all technologies are bad or that technological progress should be halted. That just means that we need to think in a smart way about these problems. First, not all technologies are automation technologies. So that's the second thing I want to emphasize. Automation technologies have the defining feature that they work by substituting specific groups of workers from some of the tasks that they were performing. So there are technologies that are about displacing workers or reducing the role of human labor in the productive process. And not all technologies conform to that definition. So you could also think of technologies that are really augmenting us, making us more productive at our jobs. So for example, Zoom would be an example of a technology that augments us. It makes us more productive. It allows us to teach remotely to conduct this podcast remotely and so on. The personal computer is also a technology that augments us. New goods and services are technologies that essentially like make us more productive by creating opportunities of employment in other sectors. So we shouldn't think, we shouldn't realize that when we talk about technologies, there are really many different ways in which technology can play out. 
on the one extreme, we have automation, but on the other hand, we have technologies that are mostly about increasing productivity without creating adverse distributional consequences. And automation is very different in that sense because it creates adverse distributional consequences. So I think it's kind of like in the middle um, of those two views. And I can describe the evidence for uh, advanced economies in more detail if you want to live. Yeah, yeah, why don't you go ahead? So tell us uh, what are the leading facts for developed countries? Absolutely, so I think that one of the most important facts, which is something that you already mentioned, is the labor share of national income. So any student of economics knows that there are the famo famous Calder facts. So for example, if you look at the labor share of national income and the way that that's measured is by adding up all of the wages paid in the economy, and then you divide that by GDP. And that had been constant at a level of around two thirds of GDP. So that means that for every dollar that gets produced in the US, two thirds of that dollar go to pay for services provided by workers. Now, that was the common story, and that's kind of like part of the motivation for the optimistic view that technology essentially increases the economy, increases the pie, but the distribution of the pie stays constant. But what we have seen in the last 30 years is a big drop in the share of labor in national income that is highly concentrated in a specific industries. And so for example, if you look at manufacturing and you already mentioned Dilip that in manufacturing, we have had a lot of automation of blue collar workers. The labor share of value added in manufacturing went down from about 66% to about 40%. So that's actually much larger than what you see on the aggregate, but that makes sense because manufacturing is also a contracting sector in the US economy. But that tells you that manufacturing right now is actually a very capital intensive industry. So for example, if you're thinking of expanding employment, subsidizing manufacturing right now is not a great idea. You're essentially subsidizing capital because almost two thirds of every dollar produced in manufacturing are used to compensate uh, for capital. So you're starting to see that also in some other industries. So you're starting to see that in retail, and, and other industries as well, as you also pointed out. So that tells us that there's something changing, that perhaps the structure of production has changed, and that's a telltale sign that perhaps automation has advanced at a pace that is more rapid than what it had advanced previously, because automation is not new, and this is also something that we should recognize, right? So perhaps what changed is that Somehow in the 80s, with the advent of computers and some of these advanced technologies, we've seen more automation than before. So that's the first thing. You also see that in other advanced economies, although not as much as in the US. And you also see a decline in the labor share of national income in many developing countries. So it seems to be a worldwide phenomenon. So there's a paper by Kravarbunis and Neyman showing this. So this suggests that this is not only something caused by globalization where you're shifting the labor share from developed countries to developing countries, it seems to be happening everywhere. And that really points to technology. So I would say that that's kind of like the main thing that's happening. And that's important because it's going to affect in a way the distribution of income. We tend to think that labor income is kind of like the big equalizer because we're all born with labor, but we are not all born with capital or with wealth. And so every technological shift that increases the importance of capital in the economy is going to make wealth a more important determinant of the distribution of labor income. So that's kind of like the big thing that's happening, and that's also affecting labor markets. So let me ask, the way you described it, it seems the, the direction of technological change perhaps altered sometime around the 1980s where the importance of automation rose. You said automation is not new, but presumably became more significant relative to the labor augmenting kind of technology. Was that somewhat exogenous? I mean, as in the neoclassical model where technical progress is totally exogenous, manna from heaven, or is there some underlying economic explanation for it? Absolutely. So I think that that's kind of like the million dollar question in my view. So I think that if you want to explain the constancy of the labor share, you need to argue that you had automation, but you also had other forces that kept the labor share constant. And so, for example, you might think, and you already also mentioned this, that as we automate existing tasks, we are also creating new jobs, new sectors, new industry, new products, and so on. And so when these two things advance at the same rate, you're going to have constant labor share, and we're going to have like essentially balanced growth, the type of growth that we like because it's not affecting the distribution of income, everyone benefits, etc. 
So what happened in the 80s that made automation win this race between automation and new tasks? I think that there were some exogenous factors, but also some endogenous forces. So among the exogenous factors, I think that the most important one is essentially Moore's law. We just had amazing advances in computing power. And those amazing advances in computed power just made it feasible to develop many of these automation technologies. So that's a big change that I think it's really like, it just happened to be the direction that technology took. It is very hard to think that there was a conscious choice. But I also think that there were important endogenous factors or policy decisions that further reinforced this emphasis on automation. So let me mention a couple. So the first one is our demographic changes. It's no mystery that the world is getting older. And when you look at the data, many of the countries that are investing very heavily in automation and robotics are countries that are aging rapidly. So for example, the main supplier of robots in the world is Japan and then Germany. And what these two countries have in common is very old populations. And so in that sense, automation is an endogenous response to the scarcity of young labor that is being created by these pressing demographic changes. And when you start thinking about it in that way, then it also becomes clear that, well, automation might be actually very good and might actually be a necessity in these countries. But what's the problem that once these technologies get developed in these countries, they're also exported to the rest of the world. So perhaps what is an appropriate technology from the point of view of Japan and Germany, given the demographics, is not an appropriate technology at all from the point of view of the US or developing countries, which do not have a problem of labor scarcity. If anything, they have the opposite problem. They have too much labor that they're thinking about how to employ. And so that's another important endogenous factor. And the third important endogenous factors, I think, is taxes. So in many countries, we've seen a shift towards greater capital subsidies in many cases or lower capital taxes and a big reliance on taxes on labor to raise revenue by governments. So that's not only the case in the US, but also in many developing countries where payroll taxes are quite important. And if you think about it, and, and I think that Bill Gates was actually mentioning this at some point, this also creates an incentive for developing technologies uh, that automate labor because you are increasing in an artificial way the cost of labor. And interestingly, this can actually lead to a lot of inefficient automation because you're going to automate not because the robot is great, but just because labor is taxed very heavily. So that could be a third force that create this broken balance at some point starting in the 80s. And then there are other things that maybe there are societal choices, right? So for example, China just decided that they want to invest in automation and that's kind of like their new development strategy. And I think that also a lot of like a business mentality in the US has a similar vein, which is, well, we should reduce cost at all expense. And that became the managing mantra at some point in the 80s or the 90s. And so maybe it's a combination of all of these factors. Just one question. I was confused by first your drawing attention to Moore's law, which makes you think about semiconductors and you think of Silicon Valley. But then the example that you gave of countries leading research and automation are Japan and Germany. So what industry should we be thinking of where this uh, tended to be really pronounced? Is it really IT semiconductors or is it more machines and motor parts and the like? I think that essentially the way that I see it is that computers and semiconductors are an input into many of these automation, machinery, and algorithms. But in a way, semiconductors and computers are a general purpose technology. You can use them in many ways. And so this goes back to the initial point. Like I think that the US has just been using those computers and semiconductors in many ways, but the use of computers and semiconductors for the purposes of automation blue collar work has something that has been spearheaded by Japan and Germany. I see. So it was a combination of the two. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So like yeah. it's the first thing that made it feasible yeah. for Japan and <laughs> Germany to develop the specific technologies to do those tasks. Right, right. Yeah, I saw in one of your papers with Daron Asimoglu that within the US, when you look at it spatially, the greatest amount of automation seems to be happening in Detroit. Absolutely. Uh, yes. Yep. And that yes. has an explanation. So, so actually, if you want to understand what are the consequences of this, it's tricky, right? Because it's, it's a macro question. So you would like to know what happened in a counterfactual world where we don't develop robots or where we don't develop robots in certain industries, et cetera. 
So it's complicated. But I think that that situation that I described earlier, where most of these technologies for automation, at least in the case of manufacturing, are being developed abroad, offers a nice natural experiment. Because essentially, the US is becoming a user of these technologies. So from the point of view of the US, many of these developments can be taken as exogenous. So now let's think about industries in the US. So think about car manufacturing. In what other countries in the world is car manufacturing big? Japan and Germany, countries that are aging very rapidly. And so this is an industry with a lot of automation. And as a result, that's also an industry that in the US is benefiting from those technologies. So now you can ask, well, what has happened in the US to that industry? What has happened to workers in that industry? And what has happened to the regions that specialized in that industry, namely Detroit, right? And what you can see is that, number one, that industry is experiencing higher TFP, which is consistent with the fact that there's something good going on in terms of technology. But despite the fact that the industry is experiencing higher TFP, workers are employment in that industry has decreased, the labor share of that industry has dropped, and wages and employment in the regions that are specialized in this industry have declined. So it is hard to make aggregate statements from this, but it does suggest that at least, again, like I said, this is a technology with the potential to create winners and losers. And in the US, you can see the losers in those regions that happen to specialize in those industries with a lot of automation. So talking about winners now, I mean, a lot of the attention has been focused on the losers for very good reason, as you explained. But is there any concrete evidence of productivity gains, income gains, drop in the cost of living uh, that automation has helped bring about? Are these yet to be realized in the future? Is it possible to project out into what is going to happen in the future based on what we have already seen? so far? Yep, absolutely. So I'm skeptical that automation in manufacturing has brought huge productivity gains of the sort that we saw before the 80s, when most of the innovations in manufacturing were in material science and product design, and essentially bringing new entirely new industries. And the reason, again, is because of the way that automation works. If you think about automation, it is essentially changing the way that we produce something that already exists. So instead of having a person doing the welding, I'm gonna have a robot doing the welding. But then that implies that there's only so much that you can reduce costs by doing that, right? So like if the welder costs you $80,000 and the robotic system costs you $60,000, you only reduce costs by $20,000 and then you have to multiply that by the share of the cost of the car that was paid to welders. And so that's going to end up being a small amount. And so we've done the calculations. And, and the amazing part is that even though this technology has created all of these adverse distributional effects that I was describing, they only increase TFP according to our best estimation by 5% at the aggregate level in the last 40 years. So TFP growth in the US in the last 40 years was actually of 35, 36%, actually not huge, but that's the number. And automation only contributed five percentage points of that 35, 36. So this means that automation is not the main driver of productivity growth. And so it is not the main fact that's going to be pushing the cost of living down, et cetera, et cetera. I think that it could be very different if we find out ways to automate labor in sectors that are bottlenecks in terms of cost of labor. So for example, I do think that more automation in healthcare would be something that has a greater potential to reduce cost of living and to create welfare gains for a lot of the population. So also, I guess it's important to make a distinction between automation and the revolution in information technology, which is much wider, right? Absolutely. Uh, but even with the IT revolution, I forget who it was that used to quip, was it? Bob Solo saying the internet is everywhere, but not in the productivity statistics. So it exactly, took a yeah, while I think it was Solo to show yeah. up, right? It took a while to show up. I forget the exact reasons why now people are, I believe, finding it in the productivity statistics. So it's taken some time for those generalized 
growth dividends we realized from the IT revolution. Am I correct in that? You're, you're absolutely right. And it is also true that in my calculation, essentially, the part where you would see that is that essentially when I do my calculation, I'm keeping that worker earning the same wage that they were earning before. So like I'm just sending that worker to another job where they earn the same. But you can think that in the long run, there are two things that are going to start happening. Essentially, those workers that are no longer welders are going to find better jobs or better positions or are going to become educated. And then you're going to have more workers designing cheaper and better robots. And so you get a deepening of this automation where you're actually no longer displacing any other workers, but you're making the technology work better. And so at that point, all you're going to get is pure productivity gains, pure productivity gains coming from additional improvements to those robots, from people finding better jobs over time, et cetera, et cetera. And this is something that we've seen historically, not only, as you mentioned, but also during the first industrial revolution, at least for the first 60 years, we had something that was called Engels Pause. So like essentially output was going up, but not as much, but wages were kind of like constant. And despite all of that technological progress. And only after 60 years, we saw wages start picking up and we sort of got in this wave of modern growth. And so you can think that something like that might be happening, that initially you see all of the displacement and the substitution and productivity growth. But then in the long run, you start doing additional innovations. And so the robots start getting better. They actually stop displacing more people because they already substituted them. And at that point, you get all of these big productivity increases, wages go up, et cetera, et cetera. But then there's a question of how fast are we going to get there? And do we have to do something in the meantime? And what can we do to accelerate that transition? So let me ask about human capital accumulation and the role that it plays in this process. So I guess one of the things that has happened in the past, for instance, in the 19th century, was the development of new occupations going hand in hand with the growth of education. As people were moving out of agriculture into industry and getting the kind of training that they needed to perform blue collar jobs, that required a substantial expansion in education. Similarly, in this current era, with this kind of technological change, we're going to wait and expect to see new occupations emerge, which will require a new generation of workers uh, that acquire a, a new type of skill. And that perhaps takes a generation or two to be realized. That process, however, is, I guess, a complicated one because it involves expansion and education, which sometimes just doesn't happen through the private sector. So in the 19th century, let's say in the U.S., for instance, U.S. was a leader in terms of the provision of mass education through all kinds of public schooling reforms. It promoted, for instance, the development of agricultural technology after the Civil War and so on. So the public sector played a big role in that transformation process. Do you see similar challenge arising in the wake of this technological revolution? Absolutely. And I think that that's going to be a key factor going forward. So, so actually, this is one of the most amazing facts that, that I know. So you're absolutely right that, that when you look, for example, at high school graduation rates for people in each cohort. So people born in the 1950s, people entering the labor market in the 1950s, were graduating uh, of high school at a rate of 50%. So one in every two person had a high school degree. That number went up to 90% by 1980. That process actually started a little bit earlier, but that's actually describing all of this high school movement or this high school revolution that took place in the U.S. And I think that that was one of the reasons why the process of structural transformation from agriculture to manufacturing was so nimble in the U.S. Essentially, we managed to educate all of these people very quickly, and we managed to increase our high school attendance rate by a lot. And it's now 90%. So it's actually pretty hard to increase it by more. And it has been at a high of 90% ever since. Now, you would imagine that with this new wave of automation, we would do something similar. We would start pushing more people through college, which seems kind of like the new relevant threshold for what determines educated worker these days, right? But actually, that has not been the case. So when you look at college completion rates, which is not the same as attendance, 
because attendance has gone up, but you need to look at completion rate because that's what matters the most. It went up from about 6% for the cohort entering the labor market in the 1950s to about 30% for the cohort entering the labor market in the 1980s. But then it remained completely flat for the last 40 years. So this means that in the last 40 years, the U.S. has made essentially no progress in terms of educating a greater share of the people in each cohort. Yes, we have more people with college, but that's just because of the entry of new cohorts that are more educated than exiting cohorts. It's entirely a composition effect. But that number, we still have kind of like that ceiling at 30% that we have not been able to surpass, at least for men. The only progress has been for women whose college completion rates have actually been going up. So to me, there's a very important question of whether the educational system is ready to increase college completion rates. And, and at least it hasn't been able to do that in the last four years. So maybe a lot of these poor distributional consequences that I was describing earlier is not just technology's fault. It is the combination of technology and the fact that we didn't make any progress in terms of labor supply, in terms of educating people. And when you put all of these things together, you go back to the classic ideas of the race between education and technology. And well, it has been technology that has been winning the race lately, right? So I certainly believe that the new technology, be it IT, be it automation, uh, has raised the skill premium, particularly the college skill premium. Absolutely. So certainly increased since the 1980s. So it is uh, striking then that the, the college completion rate has remained stationary at 30%, despite the sharp increase in the returns to education, to completing college, for instance. So why do you think that has been the case? I have no idea. But, but of course, this is an example where there has to be some type of constraint because you would think that people have all of the incentives to acquire more schooling, right? Like that's kind of like what we teach in economics. If the rewards for something go up, then you should be doing more of it. But there has to be some physical constraint that is preventing them from doing it. It is actually worse because it's not only the college premium that has gone up. The wages for a man that doesn't go to college have actually gone down slightly in real terms. So it's kind of like your standard of living is deteriorating and you could do something about it if you went to college and completed college, but still men are not doing it. And so again, this raises a very important question. Why are they not doing it? And can they do it? And what are the types of institutions that we need to set in place in order to achieve that? Um, and those are all super important questions that I don't know the answer, but there has to be something that is preventing this process from happening. And the numbers that you gave us just a little while ago on, let's say, high school completion rates and college completion rates, I imagine that's for the United States. Correct. And that's a very what good the, question. I don't, know, I don't know how they will look in other countries. Right. So where, for instance, the public sector plays a much bigger role in college education. Absolutely. Okay. I uh, think that that okay. would be interesting and also not only formal education, but also training systems and apprenticeship systems, right? right. So right. there are papers comparing the German experience with the US experience. And they conclude that in Germany, uh, robots have been a much more positive force. Part of that is because of the demographics that I already mentioned, that there you really would expect large productivity gains because they are experiencing a problem of labor scarcity. But part of it could also be the fact that firms are more used to providing training. And so they retrain some of the workers. So, so it could also be that, that maybe even if you don't see college attendance going up, firms are doing a lot of the retraining in-house. Some reason that it's working better in, in Germany and Japan because they have a tradition of apprenticeship programs, whereas uh, the United States has not. Uh, so I guess that's a, a difference in sort of historical institutions of the labor market. Absolutely. That would be my hypothesis. Right. I do want to shift uh, the discussion to implications for developing countries. But before we do that, one other question about the role of policy. You mentioned taxation, for instance, that labor has been taxed much more than capital. And that has probably contributed to this sort of pattern of, of displacement and in general, technological change tending to take this kind of displacement of workers to what extent are there studies that show the effect of tax policy on automation or income distribution through this route? 
what are the effects of labor market regulation? So efforts to protect workers, for instance, through minimum wage regulations can actually increase the incentive to automate. So to what extent has labor market regulations contributed to the problem? Absolutely. So I think that that's a great question. I'm not aware of any direct evidence on the role of capital taxation. That one is tricky because these reforms tend to be like at the national level. So it's hard to get good experimental variation to answer that question. We do have a paper, which is more like a macro paper of see what's the effective tax on capital and how much it has changed over time and trying to quantify how much of the decline in the labor share is due to that. But that's kind of like entirely model driven. But I do think that there's more evidence on the role of regulation. So there are by now some very good papers showing that, for example, minimum wage policy can lead to more adoption of some automation technologies. There's some evidence for the U.S. looking at checkout machines in supermarkets and gas stations. And actually, there's a paper for India that shows a similar thing. It's a paper called Effect of Minimum Wages on Automation and Offshoring, Decision of Firms, Evidence from India by Jean-Francois Gautier. I don't think the paper is published yet, but essentially the paper is looking at regional differences in minimum wages and showing that that actually leads to more offshoring and more automation. So I agree 100%. In the US, there's also evidence that restrictions on immigration lead to more automation. And so in many cases, many policies with the good intention of protecting some workers can actually backfire because they can lead to the adoption of some technologies that end up making the workers that you're trying to protect worst off in the long run. So in a way, you should think that these technologies are making the demand for labor more elastic. And so you should be aware that anything that you do to raise wages can lead to an even greater reduction in quantities than what you would expect holding technology constant. So that presents a real dilemma for policymakers that have to deal with some of the unfortunate distributional consequences, but then they also have to contend with the implications of perhaps making the problem worse in the long run. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that that one way of doing it would be via wage subsidies. So it's counterintuitive, but like the reason is that if you really, let's imagine that there's a social benefit of working, that for some reason, the market is not internalizing. So when people are out of work and they're at their home, then you get like the opioid epidemic and you get a disruption of the social fabric of society, whatever. And this is not internalized by the market. So you really want to put people to work. If you really want to put people to work, like the best medicine is a wage subsidy because that actually reduces the incentives for automation. So you're only going to automate when it's really, 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 really profitable. And and that's not going to, to create this problem that we were discussing. So... So that would be one. And it also transfers resources to those workers who are in a vulnerable position. So, so that would be something that achieves that. Is there any instance of any country that is trying wage subsidies as a resolution? Not that I know of, because there's a lot of discussion about universal basic income. But I'm not crazy about universal basic income because first it's not targeted. And so I tend to favor wage subsidies much more. So give a wage subsidy for work in Detroit. And to me, that seems much better than just like a universal basic income, which seems like a policy that doesn't target the people who need it. And that actually might make people less willing to work, even though the evidence on that is not at all clear, but it might happen. And so it might generate additional adoption of technologies. Who knows? So wage subsidy seems to be much better to me, assuming that you want to increase employment. So that's always under that assumption, right? But isn't there a risk also with wage subsidies that they would reduce the incentive to introduce technological change in the first place, which might raise productivity overall in the long run? I think that you will have some of that. You will have a slowdown of the adoption of automation technologies. But like I said, on the one hand, you would have that. But on the other hand, you might have more incentives to introduce technologies that augment workers. So it really depends on whether you think that society has the right balance of technology. If you think that society right now is investing too much in automation and you want society to invest a little bit more on augmenting technologies. And again, I don't know why that would be the case, but let's assume for the sake of the argument that that as a policymaker, you are convinced of that then this would shift, in my view, the direction of technology more than the total extent of technological progress. So are there any uh, sort of well-quantified macro models where 
oh, the effects of a wage subsidy have been estimated? I don't think so. I think that the equivalent would be reducing payroll taxes, right? Like reducing payroll taxes would be essentially the Correct. same thing as yeah. uh, giving a wage subsidy. And I think that when you put it those ways, most economists would say that that sounds like a good idea in terms of generating employment, reducing informality, etc. right? Right, right. Okay. Some very interesting ideas there for how to approach the problem from the standpoint of policy in developed countries. So let's now shift the discussion to the implications for developing countries. So in the context of developing countries, I guess there is this widespread concern about premature deindustrialization that Danny Roderick has talked about. And I guess what he has in mind is not only the importation of inappropriate technologies, because the automation technologies were developed in more advanced countries where the capital labor ratio is quite different, where the incentive is to reduce labor cost and where capital is cheaper. And in developing countries, labor is a lot cheaper. So these technologies are inappropriate, but that's where technological change happens. It's in the most advanced countries and then it diffuses to the other countries. So there is one, the importation of inappropriate technology, but you also have <clears throat> the problems of the slowing down of the convergence gains from globalization. Uh, so the growth of exports from developing countries to developed countries tends to slow down because now developed countries are automating. You know, that's a, the, an alternative to importing goods from developing countries, which have a comparative advantage in, in labor-intensive manufacturing. And then also a reduced incentive for uh, developed country multinationals to offshore in the form of direct foreign investment. So we are hearing about reshoring where foreign direct investment is getting negated and uh, multinationals are moving operations back to their home country. What are the facts related to premature deindustrialization? Do you think this is borne out by the facts? Yeah, so I think that that's a very interesting discussion, but I think that the facts are not clear yet. So on the one hand, there's a lot of controversy on whether there's actually premature deindustrialization. So the basic idea is that if you take any country and you plot the share of manufacturing employment in the vertical axis against the level of development in the horizontal axis, you are going to see a U-shape, right? So that's the pattern that you saw for the US. That's the pattern that you've seen for every advanced economy in the world. And that U-shape actually looks quite alike. So it's almost always at the same stage of development where they reach the maximum employment share of manufacturing and then it declines. And the concern of premature industrialization is that somehow countries are reaching that maximum level earlier in their developing process and at a much lower level. So they don't get to employing 30% of their population in manufacturing. They stop at 2017 much earlier and then it decreases sharply. So that's the claim. And I think that my understanding is that it really depends a little bit on what countries do you look at, the time period, et cetera. So I think that that's far from settled. And the other thing is whether, assuming that there's premature industrialization, whether automation in developing countries has contributed to that. And I would say that there the evidence is even more mixed. There are studies, but I would say that, that so far, is perhaps too soon to tell. I personally do think that these technologies are going to change the pattern of trade, and in particular, the sequencing of trade that we have seen in the past, where essentially what you had is that industries start in advanced economies, and then over time, they start moving towards lower wage countries. Then when wages start growing in that country, they move to the next country, and so on. And I think that's been called a flying geese pattern. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. So we used to have that pattern. And I do think that automation is going to slow down that movement or that race to the bottom, if you wish. But I think that that has not happened yet. I think that that's something that is going to happen more in the future. So let me give you an example. We already talked about the car manufacturing industry. I think that in a counterfactual world with no automation, the car manufacturing industry would start moving eventually to low-wage countries more and more and more over time. And I think that that's probably now not going to happen because the labor share of the car manufacturing industry is now like 
So that means that the extent to which you can save costs by moving to a low wage country are becoming smaller and smaller. When your labor share is 70%, then you have big incentives to move to where wages are low, even if productivity is not high and you have to pay transportation costs. So I think that automation is going to put a dent to it, but it is hard to see it yet. Another way of thinking about it is, well, that's kind of like a little bit of counterfactual scenario of what would have happened in the future. But let's imagine for the sake of discussion that let's take another industry, apparel. So I think apparel is actually quite interesting because initially apparel and the whole textile industry were in the US and then they start moving to lower wage countries. Then they move to China and now wages in China are super high. So it can no longer be competitive in that industry. So the apparel industry is moving to Bangladesh or Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera, right? But now let's imagine that you developed a technology that is capable of doing the sewing automatically. And it's crucially to understand that you cannot automate sewing with existing technologies. It's very, very complicated because the fabrics always come in an even shape. So all of the textile components are automated, but the sewing is kind of like the bottleneck. That's the part that you cannot automate. And that's the part that has made this industry jump from the US to China and then to Bangladesh and then to Vietnam. But let's imagine that you develop using artificial intelligence, a robot that can sue. And there's actually several startups that are trying to do this. There are very interesting techniques. One is you use artificial intelligence to get a better read of the fabric and more adaptability. There is that you use a chemical process to turn the fabric into a solid thing that you can sew while it's solid. And solids have the advantage that you can control the shapes much more. And then through the inverse chemical process, you turn the solid thing into a fabric again. But let's imagine that you achieve that. I think that that would imply that in a matter of years, all that industry would move again from Bangladesh and Vietnam to either China at that point, because it already has a lot of robots and automation, or back to the US or closer to the US in one way or another. But, but I do think that it can generate big changes. It's just that I don't think that it has happened yet. And that in the, to the extent that it has happened, it has been mostly like a process of slowing it down rather than creating proper reshoring. I've also been reading some papers which provide some evidence of actual possible gains to developing countries from automation happening in developed countries. So there is this paper by Stapleton and Webb, which looks at the implications of automation in Spain and looking at uh, the impact on what's happening in firms and then on demand, on, on the composition of its exports and its imports. And you see an increase in exports out of Spain, but also an increase in imports into Absolutely. Spain. And yep. that I think the authors describe as driven by some of these general equilibrium effects of the automation, uh, an increase in demand for goods from other countries, or perhaps the automation happened in one sector of the firm, which was complementary to other sectors of the firm where the automation didn't happen. And it increased the scale of production in that other part of the firm, which imported intermediates from developing countries. So there are all these other general equilibrium kind of spillover effects, some of which seem to be beneficial to developing countries. So is this an isolated example or uh, do you think there are other kinds of these general equilibrium spillovers that might affect the trade structure? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that this also kind of like showcases the importance of thinking of when thinking of automation, think really like what are the tasks or the processes that are getting automated? Because again, like many times people want to say like, okay, but wait, are robots complements or substitutes to foreign workers? But I think that in general, technology is not always complement or always substitute to something. It really depends on what the technology is doing. So let me give you one example, which I think is essentially what you are suggesting. Let's imagine that I have a firm and I automate my sales processes. So if I automate my sales, what is that going to do to my suppliers abroad? Well, that's going to increase the demand for their services, right? So like, actually, they're going to benefit because I automated a part of my production process that is complementary to anything that my suppliers abroad are doing. So this would be one type of automation that is actually complementary to workers abroad. And that actually increases offshoring. It doesn't generate any types of reshoring. But now let's imagine that you develop a technology that is capable of automating the tasks that you were doing abroad. 
So you develop this new uh, technology that can sue. And so before you were just doing the design in the US and we're doing the suing in Bangladesh. But if you develop the technology, you can do both in the US. So it really depends on who are the workers that are doing the tasks that you can now automate and whether those workers are located in your country or abroad. And I think that for most of the automation technologies that we've seen in the last 40 years, the answer to that question is that the workers who were doing the tasks that got automated were the workers in the developed countries. And so that's why I think that automation so far has complemented workers in the developing world rather than substitute them because automation has not happened in the tasks in which developing countries specialized. That might change in the future. So that was my point before. If you thought that a country was eventually going to specialize in welding for the car manufacturing industry, that path is closed. But that's not something that we see now. It's something that's kind of like a counterfactual scenario of something that could have happened, but didn't happen. Right. But one also hears of some large firms in some developing countries. So for instance, garments in Bangladesh or in Vietnam, which have managed to remain internationally competitive by also automating their processes. Uh, Absolutely. So we also see instances of automation happening as sort of in the formal sector, in the large firms, and they are successful. Is that a possible route? Is that why China, for instance, is adopting the strategy that you described earlier? where it's sort of yeah. actually embracing and subsidizing automation. Completely, yeah. I think that, that at that point, if you are a developing country, that becomes one of your only strategies, especially if you are a developing country whose wages are starting to grow. But the point is that essentially, yes, you can do that, but that doesn't take away the fact that the creation of that technology implied that you lost part of your comparative advantage because you used to have a lot of labor. So there has to be something else that you're bringing to the mix. So either you become very good at doing it and you start bringing design or something, but, but you cannot just keep this industry in your country just because you had cheap labor, right? So there are probably some success stories, but at that point, I think that the, the economics, the costs are going to push towards these industries moving eventually back closer to consumers. And, and again, you have to, to swim against that. Before, you had the cheap labor going on for you, but now you don't have it. So you have to swim faster and you have to do something else. And for sure, adopting the technology at that point is a must. But there's no guarantee that by doing that, you're going to retain the industry. It's just kind of like the best strategy you can follow, but it's no longer better than in the counterfactual world where the technology didn't exist. But uh, I mean, going back to China again, aren't there particular industries where the Chinese are no longer sort of the developing country. They're kind of the, the leader in technology. I mean, you think of, of development of solar energy, mm -hmm. for instance. Uh, so is it possible that if developing countries were to take a very long-run view where technology is sort of very actively subsidized, sponsored, and very consciously promoted, it is possible for latecomers, for developing countries to leapfrog existing advanced industrial nations and become leaders themselves? Do you think there is scope for a path like that for some yep. developing countries? I mean, I think that there's scope for a path like that. But I think that the question is whether automation is the key component of that path or where that path has to be accompanied by other elements. So I guess that my point is that I'm not sure that the only thing that a country has to do is bring the robots and create automated factories. And that by itself, that is going to ensure that it's going to remain a leader in that industry because essentially anyone can do that, right? So that doesn't mean that, that just by doing it, you're retaining a comparative advantage in that industry. So I think that at that point, it really depends on what additional things you do. So are you investing in human capital? Are you investing in other complementary activities such as design and R&D that are gonna really make you a leader in that industry? So I think that point, like that's what's going to consolidate your leadership in that industry. And it's not just the fact that you have robots doing the work. If anything, I would say that at that point, that becomes a minor component because everyone has access to the same robots. So that's no longer a determinant of the location of that industry. Right. And in terms, so you, I mean, you, you mentioned a little while earlier that uh, the implications in terms of displacement 
in developing countries probably is not as large as in developed countries because a large part of the automation and the accompanying labor displacement has happened in developed countries yeah but however you also pointed out that uh, the flying geese pattern might be sort of uh, slowing down which means that opportunities that would have arrived for the development of new industries will no longer arrive and so perhaps the worst is yet to come absolutely uh, now and developing countries the demographics quite often are very different they have a large mm-hmm. young population that's looking for work and it is out of work mm-hmm. so in terms of the distributional implications uh the problem may actually end up being more severe because of that sort of distinct demographic structure as well as kind of weaker state so the potential for unrest to have political ramifications is also great in developing countries so in view of that uh, which is a very very complex problem what are policy options that uh, developing country governments should be considering or thinking about yeah i think that that's very 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 hard question so actually yeah i don't think that i have a very good answer for that because i mean to me whether that is an area that you described happens or not is going to be one of the most consequential questions for the developing world in the years to come right so i mean let me put the question another way i guess that the question is whether developing countries are going to be able to pursue the same development strategy that china pursue and that many east asian countries pursue uh, where they manage to insert themselves in global value chains at a very fast speed employed all of the people not only like the young people entering the labor force but also people moving from rural areas to urban areas and the question is whether all of the countries that are now starting the same process in africa all of the countries in latin america that also have big growing urban populations are going to be able to follow this pattern and to me it's not clear i mean it's not only because of automation it's also because of china which is also like a consolidated player that is out there so it's not clear that that strategy remains open and to me that's kind of like the biggest question or should be one of the biggest questions in development these days what's the strategy is that strategy still feasible or should we thinking of alternative strategies and if so what's the role of policy in both deciding and guiding those alternative strategies and to be honest i don't know because you could say you can always say like yeah they should invest in education whatever right sure they can invest in education infrastructure but but i don't know if that's going to be enough to generate their insertion in global value chains and whether that's going to be enough to generate the same growth that china achieved in the last 40 years right or 30 years so i just don't know whether that type of convergence is still possible on the other hand there are papers that are suggesting that countries are converging faster than before so so maybe we are wrong and we are missing something and technology is diffusing way faster than before on that hopeful note i think we should end here thank you pascual for a very enlightening discussion that was really lovely uh, <laughs> and uh, let's let's hope that we can continue this the next time we meet fantastic really thanks so much for the invitation and it was pleasure talking to you